true high camp always has an underlying seriousness. You can't camp about something you don't take seriously. You're not making fun of it. You're making fun out of it. You're expressing what's basically serious to you in terms of fun and artifice and elegance. Christopher Isherwood, 1954. It's a blast from the past. A classic. And at the same time, progressive. Go, go. It's like there's no tomorrow. Gosh, that's what I'm going to be okay. Go, go. It's like a breath of fresh air. Welcome to Camp Film Club, comfortable home of cinematic underdogs and cultural slumming circa 2021. I'm your host, Luke Hereford, and today we will be looking at 1997's lovingly lavish sci-fi extravaganza, The Fifth Element. Today's co-host has a CV more tightly packed than his own ego, best known for playing the hapless dentist Roger Bailey Jr. in the long-running BBC sitcom My Family and PC Claude Cox in the BBC Wales sitcom High Hopes. He has also been victim of the week in Casualty and has worked extensively in Welsh theatre as both an actor and a writer. In this post-COVID world, he has been writing and performing in the podcast The 15 with Francois Pandolfo, and as bathroom vlogger Martin Decker in The Martin Decker Show on YouTube with Kevin Jones. His CV highlights include work with Neath-based company Theatre Nanog, Welsh classical stage company Mapamundi, Sherman Theatre, CBBC, Ardman, and even Disney. And that's before we even get to the ego, which I'm sure we will uncover in the next 40 minutes. Kieran Self, welcome to Cam Film Club. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Uh, Obviously, the joke about the ego is that you have none at all. I have no ego, although I can have one for the purposes of the the podcast. She said, sipping her wine. (laughs) Yes, indeed. (laughs) No, all good humour here, just like um, most of the elements of the fifth element. Tell us about your first experience of the film. My first experience of the film? Well, um, I did go and see it in the pictures, because it was 1997, uh, when you apparently were five, and I was 26, which is, you know, a little bit alarming. Um, so I went to see it, I think, in uh, Cardiff, um, and was all, all sort of quite excited to see it, actually, because it was, it was Bruce Willis when he, in his heyday, sort of. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a big sci-fi film. It was Luke Besson, who'd done Nikita and... The Big Blue and Leon, which are all great films. Mm-hmm. And it was a big budget sci-fi blockbuster, which I'm quite partial to, um, being a big of a Star Wars geek. So, you know, I was I was quite sort of stoked to see it. And and then and then I saw it. And and, and I didn't feel quite as excited afterwards, I'm afraid. It is a, a batshit crazy film. It's like um someone's got a splurge gun from Bugsy Malone and just shot it everywhere. And hope that some of it will stick. <laughs> so many different elements. Elements. I'm yeah. sure we'll be saying that a lot tonight. Nice yeah, little yeah. pun. <laughs> um, and that splurge is, of course, neon orange, which yes. seems to be a recurring colour all the way through the film. Lots of orange. I think what's what we try to do on Camp Film Club is cover many different genres. And obviously sci-fi is a, is a genre that has many different iterations, as do so many other genres, you know, Horrors are sometimes a little bit more psychological or, again, mm. they can be camp. So I think I'm, I'm quite interested to kind of explore what you, as someone who 
is obviously is is a big Star Wars fan um, and is a sci-fi fan. I'm just going to yeah, assume yeah. generally. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I, I'm quite partial. Like how this film sort of holds up to other films in the genre. Well, if if you know, we can explore this further, but I don't think it, it holds up very well. <laughs> But um, you know, the design of it's fantastic. But for in terms of it, actually, yeah, I, I my opinion of it, having rewatched it, you know, twenty odd years down the line, I probably saw it a couple of times after I saw it in the pictures as well, just on TV and stuff when it was on, and it was. I was like, oh no, it's probably better than I remember it. And it was like, oh, oh no, it's not. Oh, the same <laughs> oh, things that real really shame. irritated me about it before irritated me even more, actually. And also seeing it in 2020 eyes or 2021 eyes as it is now, some of the the relationships in it are like proper dodgy. <laughs> uh, and especially with Mila Jovovich's character being so young and Bruce Willis being like nearly 40 and I think she was like 18 when they made the actual film Mm -hmm. and the director Luke Besson also married her during or like got divorced from his first wife during the making of this film because he fell in love with Mila Jovovich and he was also you know pushing 40 so there's a lot of sort of weird undertones I think uh, you know, which which now we sort of question more, but at the time, it was like, oh, it was amazing because you know Luke fell in love on this on set, but he was all married to someone he'd had a child with when she was sixteen. So yeah, it's it's oh. like, oh, God, put that into oh. context. That's weird. All this juicy goss from Kieran Self. No, yeah, well, well, I was surprised when I was looking and I was reading around it, um, and she's actually in the film. She's the blue diva. Uh, May Wen, her name wow. is. Wow, he was married to her. What's, but... what's the character's name? Diva P- Plaza Laguna. Yeah, the one with the funny balloons on the heads. Yes. Shall we dive in? Yes. Why not? The Fifth Element was released in 1997, starring Bruce Willis, Chris Tucker, Mila Jovovich, Ian Holm, and Gary Oldman. It was directed by Luc Besson, who devised the story and co-wrote the screenplay with Robert Mark Cameron. Set in the 23rd century, it tells the story of an everyday taxi cab driver who, in order to save planet Earth, must join forces with the mysterious Lilu, who is the embodiment of the fifth element. Upon its release, the film was a box office smash, but it divided audiences and critics alike. Quotes from critics include, The fifth element is gibberish. One of the great goofy movies. A hodgepodge of elements that don't comfortably coalesce. There's a certain gosh wow sense of wonder to the whole thing that echoes the completely unique universes of George Lucas and company. I feel quite quite awful giving you that last one as you're such a such a fan of George Lucas's and maybe maybe you don't entirely agree with it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I can echo it, but it's very distant. <laughs> <laughs> I completely agree with the critics that it's... That I think, because I think generally the most um, common thread with the, with the criticism of it is that the tone is just really hard to gauge. Yeah, it's not an outright camp romp, but it's neither neither does it take itself seriously enough to kind of make you make it endearing and make you want to kind of follow it and want to like the bits of it that aren't perfect. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, the only character I guess who's who's sort of likable is. Mila Jovovich's character. She's quite good in it, actually, I think. 
as this sort of innocent mm-hmm. who's thrown into this sort of bizarre setup. And she barely speaks any English, so that says a lot, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, she's, I do think she's quite good in the part, although she just has to wear bandages for a lot of it and does take her clothes off a, a frightening amount, um, which, again, is kind of weird for a 12, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, and I think it's, it's, it's uh, yeah, it is just a bit of a, as you said, a tonal mess when you've got towards the end of the film where they're saying, oh, God, humanity's terrible and, you know, we shouldn't kill each other just after they've had a massive machine gun battle and killed lots of people. Uh, it's just, oh, I don't know. It's just, and, and there's a weird sort of, um, it feels a little bit improvised, a lot of it, or, or it's a bit too in your face. And Bruce mm-hmm. Willis seems to be just... And there's a Jewish mother in it who's sort of criticising Bruce Willis on the phone. It's just loads of really odd things. Well, the Jewish mother criticising Bruce Willis is one of my favourite things, actually. All right. But... It just feels weird. It is totally weird. But it's it's sort of... I'm like, is this a commentary on, like, 200 years from now, even Jewish mothers will have survived? <laughs> or is it just ridiculous? It's probably both. I mean, it looks amazing. That's I think that's the thing. Mm-hmm. The design of it is is very good, and Jean Paul Gaultier doing all the costumes. I think the um, aesthetic of it is is one of the very one of the sole reasons really that I wanted to do it on this podcast because yeah. that the legacy that it has, the campness of of the aesthetic that it has is it is kind of legendary. And you know, I've seen. Just speaking about that that sort of that diva opera singer moment that mm. we spoke about briefly at the start, like I've seen like three drag queens do that do that lip sync right. to that Fantastic. and like in full costume, and it's kind of grown its own own kind of legendary legacy. But yeah. I think it's one of those things that, like you said, once once you look back on it, you're like, oh, maybe this is better, maybe this is good because you know you see the pictures of it, you see flashes of it, and you're like, oh, that's great. But then actually sit down and watch it, and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, no. no. And, you know, the, the, that moment is quite good. Apparently, Bruce Willis had no idea what she was going to look like. Um, so that was the first time he'd ever seen that character in wow. costume when they film him looking at her. So that's sort of why he looks quite dumbfounded, you know, in the actual film. <laughs> and the song and everything. He does look quite dumbfounded. Yeah, so it's like just fairly genuine. Um, but, yes, it's uh, – yeah, that bit, I think, is what – that bit and you know the, the Ruby Rods stuff with Chris Tucker, who oh, mm-hmm. I just oh yeah, that just makes me cross a lot of the time, and it's like oh I just find him intensely irritating, and it's not, it doesn't feel like a genuine thing because he's he's very heterosexual still in it in in terms of mm-hmm. you know if he's going to be super mm-hmm. camp he should be getting off with everybody. But he just uses mm-hmm. he's, he's all that extravagant, dressed very camply, I suppose, um, as a trio of um, men following him around, being all fawning and very obviously um, sort of gay helpers uh, in love with him. Uh, and yet he's always yeah, exactly. And everybody else is he's, he just sort of is getting off with other ladies all the time. So it's just I don't I don't know what mm-hmm. that character is trying to say. I really want him wanted to love him and wanted to kind of for him to be a sort of shining beacon of camp joy within the film. But I think there's there's something as well in that he, you know, in, in that in that battle scene where he's just squealing and being completely helpless and being completely 
completely useless and annoying. And you're like, not only are you annoying me as an audience member, but there's something a bit awkward for me as as a queer person watching it and being like, oh, okay, because he's he's very camp and he's very effeminate. And oh, and he's just going to sit there screaming while the butch yeah. Bruce Willis guy does all the hard work. It's just a bit bit of a letdown. Do you know what I, I struggle to sort of get past with a lot of sci-fi films? Hear me out, hear me out. <laughs> um, is that there kind of has to be a lot of build-up to kind of learn the rules of the world, of the universe. This film is like, there. It is there are so many rules and there is so much going on in the plot. The difference between this and something like Star Wars is that Star Wars follows that sort of classic hero's journey plot, which we're so familiar with as audiences, that when they start introducing elements like, there it is again, like the Force <laughs> and Jedis and, and Harrison Ford's furry best friend, you're just sort of okay with it because you're easily you're easily following the plot. And whereas this is just it's the the plot takes so many twists and turns and it's it's you know, it's about half an hour before Mila Jovovich even comes in. Yeah. And so then you're like, okay, this is about you. Oh no, it's about that guy who lives in a like a giant takeaway box. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's just really hard to kind of it takes a long time for you to yeah. understand the world that they're living in. I'm also very skeptical of a, of, a, of a film that kind of uses ancient Egypt as a kind of explanation for the unexplainable. Do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. well, oh, it was ancient Egypt, so you know, you, you don't need to ask any more questions. Mannequin does it as well. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I think it's just a bit lazy <laughs> as well. The, the, the whole sort of ultimate evil thing coming back is a bit loose and a bit... It's not as clear-cut as the baddies and the goodies in Star Wars, the dark side of mm-hmm. the Force and the, you know... Mm-hmm. And, yeah, there are lots of rules. And the elements thing doesn't make sense either, like, and they know what water... And she's an element. I don't... It doesn't hold up. <laughs> I kind of I kind of don't really understand as well, like you said about the, 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 this ultimate evil... How is Gary Oldman related to that? Yeah. <laughs> how is Tricky, you know, the, the, the Bristol trip-hop rapper who used to date Bjork, how is he related to that? Because <laughs> he's in it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I think that the, the one scene that's really good with the evil bit is where Gary Oldman's on the phone to him, <laughs> essentially, and then yeah. he just gets a big lot of blood down his face. And you go, oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. But other than that, it's just this big ball in the middle of space, and there's no real threat from it at all. Um, and it no, doesn't seem... there's a, a cheap CGI skull on the ball. Yeah, yeah. It's not, it's not, it's not great. There's no jeopardy in the film at all, um, apart from, you know, will the 40-year-old man kiss the teenager at the end? But, um, <laughs> which essentially is what it boils down to. That that saves the that saves the world. That's a very cynical view, Luke. No, it's I it it is quite cynical, but I think it's understandably cynical. And I think no Jeopardy films absolutely have their place. You know, I'm a big fan of Sister Act Two. There is zero Jeopardy in Sister Act Two, and Downton Abbey the movie has zero Jeopardy, and <laughs> it's still a good watch. But in a science fiction film, it's probably not very useful. Yeah. And there's no, um, and because it's not a dystopia, it's kind of a 
well, it's, it's kind of a dystopia if you if you you know could, were trapped in a room with Chris Tucker screeching at you uh, for the amount of time that he is in the film. <laughs> that would be quite dystopian. Um, but it's quite all day glow colours and quite bright, and there's not there's no sort of real darkness there. Something that I kind of always wondered about it is maybe maybe critics were trying to take this film too seriously. I mean, what do you think? Do you think that they should have maybe just taken it with a bit more of a pinch of salt, enjoyed the wild ride? But I think the best science fiction films have got a lot more going on. You know, like um, 2001 and Alien and Blade Runner. Even, you know, Star Wars you could read as a critique of the Vietnam War. Whereas Fifth Element, it's just sort of... I don't know, there's this made-up mythology that doesn't quite hold water throughout um, about these elements Mm -hmm. and what they mean for the world and why this ultimate evil comes back is it the evil in all of us what I, it just it, nothing is clear cut enough and because everything's so noisy and chaotic mm-hmm. it's very hard to sort of get a grip on what the film's supposed to be and i think you still need that if you want a film to resonate even if you want it to just be fun it still has to make some sort mm-hmm. of overhaul coherent sense <laughs> that lack of coherence is absolutely something that is coming again absolutely something that rings true to many elements in the film mm-hmm. um elements in the film yeah, you're um, doing it, you're doing it. the score is the score is wild it's like there's jazz there's like silly three-door farcical style comedic pizzicato strings vaguely egyptian inspired music but not when we're in egypt like when we're doing a car chase there's like egyptian inspired music reggae remix of of Donizetti so there's like no and then obviously that like 90s ballad rock anthem over the credits so there's no coherent sound world which I guess is kind of interesting in a way because you're like oh are you kind of making a comment on the fact that 200 years from now we're already we already already live our lives as sort of maximalists who absorb all these different things is it commentary or is it just a mad score? Uh, I think it's probably just a mad score. Uh, but you know, I, I mean, so. I, you could you could argue that it's reflecting some sort of diversity, and things have moved on, and everything's sort of a bit of a mix mash, and the cultural melting pot. But that's done in a much better way in Blade Runner. I think it's just a question of Luke Besson was having fun and threw lots of stuff against the wall and was like, "Yeah, let's do that." Yeah, and nobody was going, "Oh, can't, no, maybe we should." No, Luke, maybe just calm down a bit. But some people love the excesses. That's the thing. I'm just not one of the ones who responded as well to it, maybe, as as others did. Florals for spring. Groundbreaking. The design and the costume is, you know, that's amazing. And obviously Jean-Paul Gaultier, I think there's there's a story about him having to personally check 500 extras for their costume in one of the scenes and being all over it. And you get the sense that it is. It's like it is designed within an inch of its life. And it works, you know. I think that's one of the, you know, strongest things about the film is how how it looks. The most coherent the f- thing about it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the fact that they're, you know, you've got Gary Oldman with, like, looking like Hitler with some Tupperware on his head, but it kind of works. <laughs> And you know, and Milo Jovovich in some bandages for ages, 
which you know is probably pleasing a lot of young boys watching the film um or girls mm-hmm. um let's talk about the bandages a minute because i was watching this last night with my partner who is a huge kylie minogue fan and mm. as soon as she burst out of the thing he was like oh wow like that looks like something kylie would wear and i was like well jean paul gaultier jean paul yeah. gaultier who works with kylie a lot yeah um yeah. But it's it, maybe, maybe she should put. Yeah, I don't know. It's a bit. There is a lot of Mila Jovovich's nipples. It sort of in a, in a not very, um, tasteful way. Yeah, again, and I as think, you said for a twelve. Yeah, and it's nine. You know, and she does take her costumes off, and you know, it's part of the innocence and the naivety of the character. You can argue that, but there's no need for us to sort of see it. <laughs> You can just film it in a different way. Swear we don't see a man's nipples in the whole film. Maybe we see like a, no. a slip of Bruce Willis. And do we see a bit of Chris Tucker? Well, he's yeah. We get, we get a little breastbone of, of Chris Tucker's mm, 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 mm. <laughs> a little cleavage, but I don't, I don't know if we've, we've got a full nipple. Um, what's speaking of which, actually, Chris Tucker? What's your favourite Ruby Rod costume? I detest the character, so it's quite hard for me to choose. Um, but I'd probably go with the the Rod Stewart sort of leopard print, and uh, mm-hmm. that was you structured know. collar. Are you going to say you like the one with the roses around? Uh, you know the. Is that I one? did. Yes, I liked his his opera garment. I mm-hmm. could definitely see that as 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 a genuine opera garment. I'm sure somebody's worn it. As, as you'd a look patron. good in it as well. You see, Luke, that's the thing. That was that was what I was actually gunning for you to say. <laughs> so thank you. Yeah, good, good. Thank you. Yeah. You could good. pull that off. Set me up well there. Yeah, yeah. Lots of those extras costumes are amazing. Like interest that mm. that story, like you said about him checking five hundred extras costumes personally, is amazing, and it it, it shows. Like mm. there's a really brief moment that somebody's in a sort of see through green PVC plastic skirt, which is great. Um, there's a sort of not, but it's sort of again ruined by a not very tasteful shot of, of this girl's bum yes, in a thong. Yeah. There is a bit of lurid sort of leeriness to some of the costumes, um, mm-hmm. but they are mm-hmm. spectacular. And I wonder whether that, if that comes from Gautier or Besson or both. It's hard to tell, yeah, and I don't think we'll ever know. No, it's just weird that it's mostly one way. You know, there aren't mm-hmm. that many men in it who are dressed in a similarly provocative manner. Uh, mm-hmm. you've, just, you've just got Ruby Rods, but then he's not, he's sort of playing a heterosexual guy, but he's just dressed in an extravagant sort of air quotes, effeminate way. Um, and screams a lot. And screams a lot. Yeah. Which is not good. A lot. No. No, not, not enjoyable. Um, something I noticed about the costumes is there's a there's a lot of scalps in this film. There's a lot of scalps, like a lot of very close shaved scalps, but they're oh, never yeah. full scalps. It's sort of like hmm. you've got a bit of scalp underneath the Tupperware on Gary Oldman's head. You've yeah, got yeah. Ian Holmes' um, little, I guess it's his son or his like... Yeah, yeah, his sort of monk helper. Yeah, yes, he's got he's got a lot of scalp. Um, I mean, Bruce yeah. Willis always has a lot of scalp. Um, 
yeah, lots of scalps. And he dyes his hair. You know, he looks quite good with uh, uh, blonde. Well, if it's if it is his own hair at that point, we're not sure. Uh, the blue diva, her costume mm. is amazing, absolutely amazing. And as I said, kind of at the start, that that diva moment is it's like it's gone down in history in the queer community. Certainly, like I, again, like I've seen it three or four times performed by drag queens. Yeah, and it's it's a real highlight. And I don't really know what it's doing other than giving us a great kind of moment of actual sort of i believe genuine beauty Mm. but that's yeah i'm fine with that i'm fine with that in isolation (laughs) yeah it's fine and then you go it's a bit like um there's that bit in mulholland drive with david lynch which is just Mm -hmm. sort of an opera singer on stage as they watch and that's just it's just odd um and is a moment of respite but then when it goes all hooked on classics you're going oh (laughs) <laughs> that well and there's sort of a some kung fu happening at the same time you're going oh, I there's don't... also also a wilhelm scream in that fight ah yes very good which just sort of brings it all down a notch or up a notch <laughs> depending on your opinions but yes i mean and that's a real standout moment and it's a real sort of design bit and luke besson actually gives it space so for a moment, it's sort mm-hmm. of quite quiet, and all it is is the singing. Still. Yeah, mm-hmm. which really sort of sticks out because the rest of the film is so frenetic. There's no finer one-liner. Gonna be, are you going to be Miller or Bruce? Oh, um, I'll, I'll, I'll be Miller then. I'll be Miller. That's okay. up to you. I don't mind. I'm very happy to be either. No, I'll be Miller. Okay. If we're going for age gap. <laughs> very good. Very, very, yeah, very, very it's perceptive. Good, good fun, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Yeah, did that. You'll never come back, will you? <laughs> Everything you create, you use it to destroy. Yeah. We call it human nature. That's sort of... I was me trying to sound like Bruce Willis and failing quite badly. That was great. Yeah. I liked it. It's great. <laughs> Big, badder, boom. It was good. That was really well delivered there, Luke. Thanks, hon. Yeah. Uh, chicken good. <laughs> is that is that Miller? Is that a Miller Jovovich one? I think so, yes. When she has the chicken, when she goes round to the monk's house and learns about oh, it's stuff. A massive chicken that yeah, she cooks in a microwave. And then, it and then it suddenly comes out again and there's even more chicken. That's right, yes. Yeah. These are the best lines, everybody. Yeah, the best ones. Lilo Dallas multipass. I think it's multipass, isn't it? Multipass. Multipass. She's she's um this is just a context for anyone who hasn't seen it. Uh this is about an hour and fifteen minutes into the film, and it's probably the first discernible thing that she says in English. Um, which is fine, apart from the fact that she's the only woman in the film and she barely gets to say anything. It's quite funny when she says it though. Oh, it is uh, funny. The, yes. the repetition of multipass. She keeps on saying She thinks her name is Multipass. Yeah. Multipass. It's like being in Glastonbury when everybody's off their face, (laughs) trying to get into some sort of tent, (laughs) backstage tent with all, you know. Oh, look, there's Kasabian. Uh, Multipass. There's there's Chris Tucker. (laughs) Which is what he says a lot to sort of dismiss people and shut them up in it. A very good Chris Tucker impression. Apparently, that's what he gets quoted a lot 
on the street, I read in an interview. What? What? The fifth element or just the buzz? Just the buzzed. People oh. say buzzed to him. Sir, sir, are you classified as human? Negative. I am a meat popsicle. Now, this is one of mine, and I'm yeah. going to yeah, milk you this go. everything I've got. Gold. I should never have pushed you out. I should have just gotten a robot. I should be there with you. I need a tan. I need a cocktail. Very good. So this is this is Bruce Willis's, well, Corbin Dallas's mother, who um, we never see. She's just sort of angrily New York Jewish at him over the phone throughout the film. Um, she's also uncredited. So... Yeah. Interesting. You don't know who played her. So, who, okay, is this, I think this is Chris Tucker again, isn't this it? This is Chris. Yeah. I can't go high enough. My voice won't go high enough. Quit! <laughs> <laughs> no, let's see. And I don't want to sound horrible, you know. I don't want to pop anything. So, quiver, ladies! Quiver! Yeah, it's not, it's not good. Quiver, ladies, quiver! Okay, good. That, go with that one. He's great. <laughs> He's he's awful, but he's great. Like I can't. I'm sort of obsessed with him in it. All right. I think it's mostly ironically. Yeah. Uh, look, lady, I only speak two languages: English and bad English. That was ad libbed by Bruce Willis. Dame trivia, Newton John. No, it's you know it is hard to do films. And write them and everything. I, I, I should know. No, I, I do know. It seems as if because this Luke Besson had originally written this when he was like a teenager, mm-hmm. and that probably explains a lot of it, to be honest. Um, mm-hmm. And whether he, how much rejigging he did of it, I don't know. That's what a lot of people can't really seem to get past is mm. the fact that it was basically written by a teenager. The Fifth Element has been criticised, I was reading an article, has been criticised by many people for its portrayal of women mm. and the fact that all of the men in it really, apart from Bruce Willis, are kind of hopeless often a bit effeminate to, to use, I don't like that word, but I guess yeah. traditionally effeminate yeah, yeah, yeah. so um, yeah Chris Tucker, even in Holm to an extent, he's kind of you know always like, oh please don't touch me, please don't hurt me um, Gary Oldman, of course, is mm. similar. Mila Jovovich doesn't arrive until like 25 minutes in, and it's only the second woman that we see in the whole film. And then all the other women are air hosts, McDonald's workers. I think you're right, though, that she comes across really well, but mm. it's just unfortunate that she's sort of the only woman grounding it. And I, I, do, I do think it, it definitely feels like like a bit of a, a bit of a oh, who's going to save everything? The butch white guy, I, he's the he's the only hope. Even mm. though she's actually the only hope. Yeah, it, and she needs him at the end to sort of say that he loves her, for mm-hmm. it to for for the world to be saved. So it's all about a man trying to express his feelings, because she's like literally dying if he doesn't say that, save her with this love that he's got for her. But he's he's quite taciturn about trying to say that. So why wasn't Bruce Willis written into the hieroglyphs? I don't know. He's not offensive in it at all. No, like, no. It's not it's not him that makes me feel uncomfortable with that idea. It's just the idea that he's the only one who has any kind of mm. power or any kind of capability 
yeah. in those big fight scenes. It's like, wouldn't it be great if, like, you know, Chris Tucker c- turned on one of those guys and, with a machine gun and killed? Do you know what I mean? Like, would the, there would just be an interesting twist to be like, oh, okay, this one, this this character who we've just been like, oh, he's a camp mess. Yeah, like, wouldn't that have just been a really nice, just a little moment? I don't know. Yeah, no, and you know, completely agree. And also the fact that you know Lee Evans is there. There's all these people around supporting Bruce, but Bruce always does it himself. I don't know whether it, it's intentional or not, or whether it's just a symptom of the sort of teenage boyness of it. Mm. Uh, That's you know. very. It could very well be that. Yeah, just a just a big old sausage fest, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, get my mate. We're going to shoot, shoot him. Yeah, <laughs> but I'm better than them. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Every single episode of Camp Film Club that we've recorded so far, there's been some strange link to Showgirls, which is, of course, the ultimate camp film. Elizabeth Barclay auditioned for the role of Lilu, but they were reluctant to hire her because of the failure of Showgirls. Yeah, which was what, about two years before, was it? Yeah, yeah, 95. I think think Mila Jovovich is really good in it. I think she is probably, Mm -hmm. she does probably give the best performance in the film. Um, well, another piece of trivia: she was nominated for a Razzie for Worst Actress. Was she? She oh, was. I think it sort of stands up quite well that performance. I think it does as well. Maybe it's just because she speaks gibberish for most of it. They were yeah. like, "Well, she's she kind really... of makes that work." And apparently, mm-hmm. her and Luc Besson uh, uh, created that language, uh, and it runs up to about five hundred words. So it's a wow. sort of blend of different things. Um, no, that's trivia. Yeah, so and they'd created it between them, and it was about five hundred words long. So it all, you know, there is some sort of structure to that. Uh, the cowboy hat one with emoji things—that's probably the cowboy it. hat. The cowboy hat. Yeah, that that one. Oh, Can you see that? Oh yes. Oh yes. Yes. Excellent. Okay. The way that we do our campometer and camp film club is yes. by using your most recently used emoji which is the cowboy hat the smiling yeah. cowboy hat man yeah. um and that is how many that that is our basically that's our our, our rector scale of right. how many stars out of 10 we think it deserves or how 10. many cowboy hat emojis out of 10 okay um, right okay in terms of campness not in terms of whether, whether we or like not it's a good film okay. no okay how many smiling cowboy hats does the fifth element get for you, Kieran Self? Well, on camp terms, I would say around the six cowboy hat. Kind <gasps> of. I w- I'm, I'm going for a six as well. Oh, there we are. Great minds mm. think alike. Solid six. Solid six Be- campometer. Marvellous. Well, what's, um, what's your emoji, Luke? Oh well, no, the, that, that's both of ours. Oh right, oh we both have that. Nice. Do, but do you want do you want to see what my most recently used emoji was anyway? Yes, for that's for shits and giggles. Why not? It was a unicorn, which is uh, unsurprising, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> very so, me, very on brand. So obvious. Yeah. Thank you for joining us at Camp Film Club. You can stay up to date with all things Camp Film on Twitter at Camp Film Club, where you can let us know your thoughts on our weekly Camp Film musings with the hashtag. Camp Film Club. Camp Film Club also has a Spotify playlist. Oh, does it, Luke? That, that's good. That's a good idea, that is. Featuring top tracks from our camp films. Just search Camp Film Club on Spotify. I've been your host, Luke Hereford, and you've been the wonderful Kieran South. Thanks for coming. Bzzzt! 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 <laughs> <laughs>
Our discussion on the Camp Film Club are opinions of our guests only and are not endorsed by the actors, directors, producers, or writers of our featured films. In fact, quite the opposite. The Camp Film theme is composed by Michael Robert Lowe.